We've been speaking about Elijah and Elisha for the past few weeks, and we're going to park again in 2 Kings chapter 6. So if you will, you can turn there to 2 Kings chapter 6. Although I will not be reading from the ESV, instead I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Uh, So if you want to simply listen to the reading, it it might be uh, more attainable than if you're trying to read and listen to a different translation. All right. So this is 2 Kings chapter 6, but you can go ahead and thumb to that point in your Bible there in the, in the row that you're on. So you can be there when we pick up and, uh, and begin to look at this text. Notice these words here, and again, I'm, reading, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation uh, for this particular passage. Yeah, 2 Kings chapter 6. And then we're going to begin with verse 8. One of the, uh, one of the professors that translated the New Living Translation, uh, Dr. Oswalt, John Oswalt, is actually going to be at the camp that I'm uh, going to be at in Kentucky. He was my, my professor in seminary. And uh, just recently he dropped by our house and actually spent the night with us, which is pretty cool. Uh, you know, rarely do you meet somebody that wrote the Bible, you know. Now, he's not that old. But, but he did write this translation, so... He helped to write this translation and was one of the editors on the team. So a, a big part of the, uh, the Old Testament part of the prophets. So notice these words here. And again, I'm going to read from the New Living. So if you would like to listen, uh, certainly very appropriate. When the king of Aram, and again, that is Syria. So just think north of Israel. You've got Judah in the south. You've got Israel. And then you've got Syria, where today Syria is. Um, was at war with uh, Israel... He would confer with his officers and say, we will mobilize our forces at such and such a place. But immediately, Elisha, the man of God, would warn the king of Israel, quote, do not go near that place, for the Arameans are planning to mobilize their troops there. So the king of Israel would send word to the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he would be on the alert there. The king of Aram became very upset, you can imagine, over this. He called his officers together and demanded, Which of you is the traitor who has been informing the king of Israel of my plans? It's not us, my lord, the king, one of his officers replied, Elisha, the prophet in Israel, tells the king of Israel, even the words you speak in the privacy of your bedroom. Now hit the pause button. Remember, in chapter 5, what happens is Naaman is healed. Naaman is one of these officers, right? He's, he's the right hand to him. You know, remember, he's like he's in the cabinet, so to speak, of the, of the administration of, of Aramean. And, uh, and so he has gone back now worshiping Yahweh. And so probably it was him that said, hey, uh, there is this guy in Israel and he hears from God. He knows even what you're saying in your bedroom, man. So here's what the king says, verse 13. Go and find out where he is, the king commanded, so I can send troops to seize him. And a report came back. Elisha is at Dothan. So one night the king of Aram sent a great army with many chariots and horses. 
I've also heard that before, right? Um, to surround the city. When the servant of the man of God, that was Gehazi, remember the one who contracted leprosy, the leprosy of Naaman, he's still with, uh, it's not a deadly form of, uh, apparently it's not a deadly form of leprosy, by the way, um, but it was given to his family. It's more like, uh, oh boy, psoriasis, yes, or some skin disease of the sort, okay? Uh, got up, so he, he, the servant of the man of God gets up early the next morning and went outside. There were troops, horses, and chariots everywhere. Oh, sir, what will we do now? The young man cried to Elisha. Don't be afraid, Elisha told him, for there are more on our side than on theirs. Then Elisha prayed, O Lord, and Lord there is Yahweh, open his eyes and let him see. The Lord opened the young man's eyes, and when he looked up, he saw that the hillside around Elisha was filled with horses and chariots of fire. As the Aramean army advanced toward him, Elisha prayed, O Lord, please make them blind. So the Lord struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Then Elisha went out and told them, You have come the wrong way. This isn't the right city. Follow me and I will take you to the man you are looking for. (laughs) And he led them to the city of Samaria, which is the capital of Israel. Okay? Be like taking the Russians to Washington, D.C. and saying, all right, and here's your army and uh, there we go. As soon as they had entered Samaria, Elisha prayed. O Lord, now open their eyes and let them see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they discovered that they were in the middle of Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he shouted to Elisha, My father! (laughs) Now he's going to address him properly. Should I kill them? Should I kill them? Of course not, Elisha replied. Do we kill prisoners of war? Give them food and drink and send them home again to their master. So the king made a great feast for them and then sent them home to their master. After that, the Aramean raiders stayed away from the land of Israel. Lord Jesus, thank you for this word. Speak now, Holy Spirit, author of our faith, to us what you would have. We pray in your name. Amen. Just to remind you, to set us into context, to sort of rewind us back to the proper historical setting, Israel is in a dark place. They're not in a good place. Israel is worshiping idols. Samaria, the capital of Israel, you say, I thought the capital of Israel was Jerusalem. Well, Israel is used in two ways in the Old Testament. One is to refer to the northern kingdom. The other is to refer to the people of God generally. So it's a bit confusing from time to time. Israel may be referred to as the whole thing, or it may be particularly referred to, and oftentimes in Kings, is to the northern kingdom. Southern kingdom being Judah. capital of Judah, of course, is Jerusalem. And the significance of Jerusalem was it was David's capital. It's where the temple was built, and the only place to properly make sacrifices for sin or for anything else, or to celebrate the festivals 
uh, which were all throughout the year, just like we have certain seasons and festivals throughout the year, was in Jerusalem, where the temple was. Instead, the evil kings of the northern kingdom had made Samaria. They said, Jerusalem, you know, that's just any other old city. We can do it anywhere. We can do it in Samaria. So they set it up there, which was wrong. They were worshiping idols straight away. Full-fledged idolatry. This is why God rose up Elijah initially. And Elijah was very concerned with law and judgment, justice of God, these things. He was all over the place, went north and south, and he was everywhere. He did not live among the people. He was much like John the Baptist, who also wore the same type of garments as Elijah wore. But Elisha was more like Jesus in his ministry at least. Now, there's overlap in both, but Elisha's name even has at the center of it save or salvation, just like Jesus' name at the center of it has salvation, just like Joshua, just like Elisha. So they're in a dark place. God has called Elijah. Now he calls Elisha. Elijah goes up, remember, in the chariots of fire, the whirlwind, and Elisha is given the same spirit as Elijah. And so instead of worshiping and acknowledging the true and living God, that there's one God, they added Yahweh to the many gods of the Canaanites, for instance, Baal worship, and any other gods they could get their hands on, maybe even some of the Aramean gods. Nonetheless, Yahweh alone stands as God of all, and they don't recognize that. Our, our own time is not unlike theirs. You know, people seem to be pretty fine with you being a Christian so long as you recognize all other religions as right and true. Isn't it? I mean, it's fine to be a Christian as long as you also understand that Muslims have the right way and Buddhists have the right way and Hindus have the right way. And although, as I said the other week, not all religions and their beliefs are wrong, but their center is wrong. And when the center is wrong and it's not Christ, then you're wrong, ultimately. Even if some of the, some of the more subjective things are right, because there's a lot right in what they're saying about humanity and this and that, where they're wrong is Jesus Jesus, as we already heard from our readings, is the center of all things. So if our center is off, then we are off, and we are not saved, except through Jesus Christ. So, our own time also offers us a type of cultural Christianity, which is to say that we assume that we're all Christians because, well, we go to church today, we know some parts of the Bible. We generally don't act like a bunch of heathens from time to time, and we're quite moral people compared to other parts of the world. But cultural Christianity is not saving faith. And saving faith is what gets you in contact with Jesus Christ. It's knowing Him. It's loving Him. It's following him, not as a culture, 
but as a person. So, our own dangers are maybe even similar to theirs. Because quite frankly, there wasn't a famine at this time. Things are going well. People have food, lodging, jobs, the economy's booming, etc., etc. And maybe those are the most dangerous times. Maybe it's the times when things are going well that we lose sight of the center and we become the center. Or our job becomes the center. Or food becomes the center. Or pleasure. Or insert whatever you will. We must remain faithful, the scripture calls us to, in times of plenty and in times of nothing. Now, thankfully, many of us have plenty. But that's not a matter of laying on our couch spiritually and enjoying the pleasures of our hand. For all good gifts come from the hand of God. And to recognize that is to recognize that he has gifted us with stewardship of gifts and ability and power and position and money and many other things. Well, you heard it when we read it. Three different times in 17, 18, and 20, it says the same thing, and that is Elisha prayed, right? Anybody that is used to inductive Bible study, which is to say actually looking at the words critically, will hear that repetition in the text and know that the author of this text wants us to see that all of these things that are transpiring are doing so because of prayer. So Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes to let him see. So you go from someone who has closed eyes to now, Lord, open his eyes. Then he prays again, Lord, shut their eyes. And then again, Elisha prays to open their eyes. So there's also this repetition of people who have closed eyes and those who have open eyes. You know, some people pride themselves on being open-minded, right? I mean, it's kind of a, especially in the academic world, you know, like the world that I get to play in a little bit, is, is all about being open-minded. Now, they define it differently than what I'm about to define it by. Because ultimately, being open-minded is shutting off everything but the material world. And I would submit to you, how in the world is that open-minded? If you only believe in what is material, which is really a pagan way to believe, because pagans, all they knew was nature, therefore they worshipped nature. They never go beyond nature or to the supernatural. And so some of the most open-minded people in our culture, who we would think, oh, wow, they've got a bunch of letters behind their name. They're at the prestigious schools. To talk about angels, to take the story that we read today seriously? I mean, come on, man. Really? Angels? Chariots of fire? Blinding people? Like, that belongs in kids' books. 
And that's what we call blinded. They can't see with the eye of faith. And yet, there is this pressure. Trust me, I know it well. You really believe that? I mean, I had a guy that sat across from me for a while that, interestingly, taught Justin at one point in his life in high school and derided him for his faith. Uh, I ended up sitting across from him in the desk as we both taught at a school. And one day, <laughs> uh, he kind of looked up over the little, whatever you call that thing on the desk. Uh, yeah, there you go, Hutch. Thank you. Yes, I'm not good with furniture. It's not my expertise. Looked over the hutch and he's like, you really believe like there was this worldwide flood and, you know, all this stuff like what Genesis said? I mean, you really believe like you actually believe that you seem like a, you know, here he goes pontificating. You seem like a pretty smart person. You believe that? In other words, if you do believe it, you're dumb, right? That's the pressure. Well, it's not the first time I've been called dumb, but... I said simply, well, you're a historian. If everybody in the ancient world, and they do, all the myths, you're not going to find a myth that's written that's written before even, heck, I mean, thousand. Any myth that's written thousand B.C. and back, you're not going to find one that doesn't mention a flood story. Not one. Everybody has a flood story. And interestingly, when we got over here to... America, the Native Americans had a flood story. Some of them, from what we could tell. A lot of their stuff's oral, so they didn't write it down, so we don't know for sure all their stuff. But the ones who wrote it down, they all have a flood story. I said, I mean, you're a historian. If everybody in the ancient world is talking about a flood, wouldn't you imagine there was a flood? Or is that not how you do history? He didn't really say anything. We still remain friends, by the way. Um... And uh, had, had a friendly relationship, but that's the kind of pressure I'm talking about. And as Christians, following the Savior, Jesus, following the Savior, Elisha, and that's what his name means, we have to be people of faith. In other words, we are people that see beyond just the material world. And that's tough for us. Trust me, I know where we live. We're in Huntsville. There's more PhDs per capita than really just about any other city in America. There's lots of degrees and engineering and mathematics and all this that come into play. And we're very scientific people and we're dressed nice and people make a lot of money because of this. And yet, none of that matters if we don't have faith in both what is visible and invisible. Do you notice the, uh, the reading today? Where was it? Wasn't it Colossians? Yes. All things have been created through Him. Things visible and invisible. Don't live your life just in the material world. And especially don't live your life for the material world. Look, I love it just as much as the next person. Eating well and binge watching my shows and doing all this kind of stuff. That's material. But understand, 
that there is a whole other part to our world that sometimes gets ignored or forgotten. Elisha doesn't forget it. His servant does. But Elisha does not, and he prayed. So that's the first thing I want to say from this text is we ought to be people of prayer because of our faith in a God who cannot be seen. Now he has been seen, and that's been passed down through the tradition of the church and, the, and, our, and our witness, and we can know him, but he's not going to show up in your bedroom. Instead, he has sent his Holy Spirit who does not have a body to live in us. And prayer takes faith, doesn't it? To really pray to God takes faith. I've been accused of simply talking to myself. Oh, you pray? So you're just talking to yourself then. It's like a pep rally or something for yourself. To make your day feel better because you're speaking to yourself objectively. It's like, no, there is a living God who helps me to pray. I had an experience, so I guess it was last year, yeah. Yeah, it was last year. A buddy of mine who I knew <laughs> at, at seminary, and he, he's, he's a huge guy, all tatted up, comes from a rough life, rough life, and deals with a lot of rough people from week to week because of his ministry. I won't go into all that. But he shows up in priestly regalia, which we all were surprised by because we're, we're showing up in you know pretty, pretty business casual stuff. And before he prayed, we all took turns praying. Before he prayed, he just whispered, Holy Spirit, teach me to pray. And I, I, I cannot get that out of my head. Like that moment, his obedience in that moment of prayer uh, has radically changed me to where a lot of times now in my own praying, I ask the Holy Spirit to help me to pray, teach me to pray. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who does, in fact, teach us to pray, gives us the faith to pray. He knows the mind of God, and he knows our mind. He knows how to pray when we don't know what to pray. And let me tell you, there's a lot of times that I don't know what to pray. I've been to the funeral of a little girl that could, her casket could be held by one person. I don't know what to pray in those moments. I've been in the room with someone who has passed away and their family. In those moments, I don't know what to pray. But the Holy Spirit knows the mind of God and knows our mind. And it says in Romans, makes intercession for us. You see, there is a mystical thing going on when you pray. You think you're just kneeling down or sitting in a chair praying your morning prayers and hopefully evening prayers. But instead, there is a whole living God that is helping you to pray and praying with you. Because remember, in Jesus' earthly ministry, he would wake up early and go be by himself. Many times it says, in a desolate place, isolated, to pray to the Father. If Jesus is God, and he is, and he needs to pray, how much more we? How much more me? 
Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. If we're following him, we will. And we'll be people of faith that believe that prayer can move mountains. Now, it's not the point of going over here to Montesano and going, moving Montesano is not the will of God. He put it there. He likes it there. He likes where Mount Everest is. He's the one who put it there. But moving mountains in your life, spiritually speaking, metaphorically, he's, he's ready to do that. The other thing here is it, that I see is Elisha's faith and witness. Elisha and Elijah before him were sprinkled on Israel, that northern, nasty, evil kingdom before its demise. And I think its demise would have been much sooner if, it would, if these two fellows would not have been rubbed into the very fabric of Israel. My point is, when Jesus says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth, salt is for preserving. You know, I asked the, the, the students at youth camp, I said, you've been to the grocery store, right? Where's the meat? They're like, in the refrigerated section, in the freezer, Right. Except for, dun dun dun, ham, right? It's like all of a sudden you're like, if you're if you're paying attention, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Somebody forgot to put the ham in the in the refrigerated section, man. How is it over here? It's because it's got a lot of sodium. What's sodium? It's salt. It's preservative. And God wants to rub His salt, church, you, into various places in our world to preserve the decay. Our world is decaying. It's soured. It's diseased. And I think he sprinkles Elijah and sprinkles Elisha into Israel in order to preserve them a few more years to give people the opportunity to do the right thing. They're going to be destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians. We know this. Shalmaneser comes in. Not one king did what was right. But I believe people were saved in their ministry because they had to go to an evil place. A decaying, corroded, corrupted place. Maybe your workplace is like that. Maybe your family's like that. And maybe God is using you to be salt. To preserve. I think he was for Elisha. But not only that. There's... There's this intercessory part to Elisha's ministry, and I think our ministry as well, certainly to Jesus. The Jews have this legend that there are, at any given time, any generation, there's 12 righteous people in the world. Um, you remember that God would have spared Sodom if there were only 10 righteous. Well, perhaps there is just one more person needed to be righteous to save America, to spare America. It won't be safe forever. Maybe just for a little while. It's corrupted. It's become diseased with sin. It's become idolatrous. And God's what I call judge-a-meter. That is to say, whenever... I mean, he's got this meter. I don't, we don't know what it looks like, but it's filling up with his wrath. And he will not continue to tolerate it. 
the wickedness here, what it's producing, the death of children. And I don't just mean abortion. I mean growing up in a family that's diseased with sin. I mean, it's, it's absolutely heart-wrenching, some of the stories of the kids that come to camp. The environments that they're being brought... He's not going to let that continue forever. It's only by His grace that He hasn't just blasted everybody out already. It's always by His grace that He hasn't blasted me out already because of my participation or my lack of participation in working righteousness and justice. Perhaps that one person is you. He's calling you. Well, Elisha also has an eye of faith that sees not only that prayer is important, not only that being an intercessor, someone to stand in the gap for other people is important, but also he sees angels, which really gets us a little sideways, you know? It's like, because look, I, look I, I, I enjoy skepticism. I, I really do. I, like, I like it. If, if you're skeptical, I like that. Because, well, I, I say that. I like your skepticism if you're skeptical about your skepticism. That would be a true skeptic, right? Like, if you, you know, I like thoroughbred stuff. You know what I mean? If, if we're going to be skeptical, then let's be skeptical through and through. Let's follow it all the way. Because it's, it's, it's just terrible when you start off well, and then you run into a point in the argument where it all falls apart. It's got to make it all the way through. Unfortunately, skepticism for skepticism's sake doesn't run all the way through. But if you truly are a skeptic, then you truly have questions that you truly want answered, and you're not far from the truth. It may be in your mouth already if you would just simply confess the Lord Jesus as Lord. It is those skeptics that only want to continue to look through windows and not see the thing face to face. You know, it's the ones who ask the questions that they don't really want answered. They already think they know. You're not far from, I mean, you're, you're very far from the truth in that instance. That kind of skepticism is damning to the soul. It does not lead to faith. But true questions leads to the truth. And the truth of all things is Jesus Christ. Don't be the type of skeptic that Pilate was when the truth himself was before him and he scoffed at truth and said, what is truth? And walks away. Angels, St. Augustine said way back in the 4th century, which I love hearing what these old dead people say, you know, like, it speaks to our very time, to our answers. It's, it's unbelievable. Like I read a sermon this morning, a part of a sermon from John Chrysostom, which is he's like from the 4th century A.D. And, it's, it, and it sounds like he gave it yesterday. It's so relevant. It's like humans are humans from generation to generation. It's unbelievable. Anyway, he says, Augustine says, that angels 
Angel is the name of their office. Spirit is their nature. In other words, angel is what they do, because angel just means messenger, angelos in Greek, just means messenger. But spirit is what they are. So they're not physical. They're not material. They're like God in this way. You know, we are the only creatures, by the way, that have the capacity for God's breath, His Spirit, in us. Now, all things live because of God's breath. But humans particularly were created, remember, formed, and then breathed within the breath of life, the Spirit of life. We're literally the only creatures. We're hanging between heaven and earth because we are both spiritual and material. We are, as one author that I read said, we are both dust and divinity. He called us tortured wonders. No, these are spiritual creatures with intelligence and will, but without the work of a body. (laughs) Because it takes a lot to get your body in line, doesn't it? I mean, it did for me at camp. It's a lot on the body. Some of you can affirm that because you were there and you volunteered. Thank you. These are spiritual creatures. They are personal and they are immortal. They have names. God knows them. (laughs) And they surpass us in glory because they literally are before the face of God, the scripture says. It's not their own glory. They're not glorious for their own sake. But every time someone meets them in the Bible, have you noticed? What do they do? They fall down and the angel says, don't, don't, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, buddy. It's okay, you know. Christ is the center of the angelic world. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, Matthew twenty-five thirty-one. That's Jesus talking about Himself. These are... His angels. That's the point. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to serve for the sake of those who are to obtain salvation? Hebrews 1.14. You see, angels have been present since the creation. They're older than the creation. And have been active in the history of salvation. They closed... The earthly paradise, remember? You know what I'm talking about? When, when they were kicked out of Eden, paradise? Who stopped up the gates and made it invisible, interestingly, for our text? It was angels. That's who. And they protected with flaming swords of fire. They protected Lot. Remember that story in Genesis? Let's go. Get out of here. They saved Hagar and her child when she had been abandoned by Sarah. Was going to die in the wilderness. Who showed up? An angel. They stayed Abraham's hand when he goes to sacrifice his son. An angel stopped his hand. They communicated the law in their ministry of messengering. They led the people of God at times. They announced births and callings. Even the prophet Daniel speaks that 
He is told by an angel, actually. He says, the minute you started praying, this angel started working and fighting against this other... It's, 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 it's a complicated text, but it sounds like another archangel on the fallen side. The minute you started praying. Do you see the connection? Elisha prays because he knows it immobilizes angels. God's messengers. Finally, think about this. Gabriel announced the birth of the precursor and of Jesus himself. Can you imagine getting Gabriel's job? I mean, he's before the face of God. And he's like, oh, we finally, it's finally the moment in the history of the world where we get to tell you're coming. And then they celebrated, right? Glory to God in the highest. Remember, there was one angel, then a multitude of heavenly hosts. All of a sudden, shepherds. That's like garbage guys in the ancient world. They're stinky riding on the side of 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 a garbage truck. It was a nasty job. On the night that Christ was born, angels showed up to those guys. Angels. Their eyes could see. They protected Jesus in his infancy, served him in the desert. Remember, he was ministered to by angels, it says. They strengthened him in his agony in the garden. You remember? He was praying, his guys fell asleep, and angels ministered to him. And he could have been saved from the cross and the crucifixion and death by angels, we're told. They were, I can imagine, ready. If they feel any emotion at all, which I think they do, they were sad and angry to see the one they loved being beaten to death, stripped naked, humiliated, and killed, murdered. One word, and it all been over. And he stays himself, Jesus does, for us. He takes the full brunt of evil and sin and death and the grave for us. They were ready. He never said a word to them, and they watched. Angels are there proclaiming the good news. I loved when I, when I did this little story. This is Peter Crave, by the way. This is all his stuff here. The incarnation, they announce it. They're the messenger. Hey, this is Jesus the Son of God. And they announce, remember, the resurrection. Who do the the women see? They don't see Jesus first. They see angels. (laughs) I love this because we never think about angels. I don't. I mean, I'm like, this this message, by the way, is for me. I don't know about what you're doing out there, but it's like, I'm like reminding myself, like, hey, by the way, dude, you're not just out here hanging out by yourself. We're even told in Matthew 18... Jesus indicates that everybody has a type of guardian angel. It's not just some myth. So just imagine that there's one assigned to you. And the church joins angels and archangels in singing the Trisagion, as we call it, which is the thrice holy verse of holy, holy, holy. We join them. Do you catch that? 
And we even say that, don't we? When we take communion, we always say, and join their unending praise. For they are always before God, face to face. Well, much more to be said, of course, about angels, but I just want to use that as a reminder that God is powerful. His resources are not limited. Lord, would you open our eyes like you did Gehazi's eyes, the servant of Elisha, to see that there are more for us than there are against us. Isn't that kind of like a great thing to go into this work week? This is the first day of the week, man. Like summer's almost over, school's about to start. It's about to get crazy up in here. I need to know that there is more for me, fighting for me, even in the spiritual world, the prayer world, than there are against me. What if you could move out in faith like that? I think we can. I think that's the point of this text. Well, lastly, and this is be the last thing we say, is that I, I just want to make mention that Elisha has a message for the king of Aram. And that is, he brings these guys right into their enemy, Israel's camp, to the capital. And they're exposed. They finally, oh goodness, how'd we get here? This is Samaria. This is not good. And, I mean, they could have all been immediately killed. The king was ready, right? I mean, he asked him, hey, can we kill him? Can we kill him? Can we kill him? You know, I mean, they were enemies of Israel. And I says, no, feed them, send them back. That's grace, isn't it? That's great. I've been found with my hand in the cookie jar. I've been found in the wrong place. And God showed grace. He didn't just kill me. Thanks be to God. Or as the uh, Haitians did it, right? It's the way they do it. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God for His grace. I think the message that God was wanting to send through Elisha was grace to the king of Aram. He had already done it in Nahum. I mean, Naaman, right? Sent Naaman back. Now he's a convert of Yahweh. The one in true only living God. And now he sends back a whole army. That's a whole other discussion, by the way. Why they send an army after one man? Because they knew this guy was in touch with the God of the universe. The God of gods. The King of kings. Is your eye of faith seeing? Or are you blind? I'll tell you what you can do about it. You can pray. That's what Elisha does. Lord, let me see. In this situation, Lord, let me see you at work. Is our witness to others strong? If not, let us pray. If there's anything in our life that is wrong, let us pray. For we are not praying to a God that we made with our own hands, but the one and true and only living God. To the praise of his name. Amen.